Welcome to Calvary Chapel Elizabeth City's online sermon series. Join us this week for Philippians chapter 2, verses 12 through 18 with Pastor John King. Good morning, seeing everybody here today. It's good to see Pastor Nick and Jesse. Look, familiar faces here. It's good to see you guys. Uh, yeah, it's the body of Christ. That's what it is, you know? I mean, we're just like, you know, you can pick up for the last chapter we left off, last conversation we had we can take it right up that's how it is in the body of Christ it's wonderful you guys ready to study God's word today all right we're going to be in Philippians as you know chapter 2 and we'll be covering verses 12 through 18 today Philip Philip Philippians is that a New Mexican restaurant Chipotle Chipotle never mind uh anyway so Philippians yeah see it's a family too not just the body of Christ, but family too. Um, you know, uh, we left off last week where Paul, he just explained the incredible work of Jesus. And we, we looked at his humble steps, those three steps downward to us, toward mankind. He left his heavenly home. He took on human nature as a servant. And ultimately, he surrendered his life on the cross. All the while, he never stopped being God. He simply set aside his heavenly privileges so that we could be redeemed through the shedding of his blood. He was and is the perfect example of humility, love, and obedience. He's our example. God the Father rewarded God the Son through exaltation to the highest place of honor. He's above all powers in heaven. He's above the heaven, the heaven, higher than the heavens even, and earth. The name of Jesus is forever supreme. And the result of this exaltation is glory to God. And remember, we were asked a couple questions last week. I think I know pretty much where all you guys are at with the Lord, but we were asked the question, uh, when will you bend your knee to honor the name of Jesus? When will you confess with your mouth that Jesus is Lord? Will it be now, before you die, with love and adoration, or will it be when he returns in fear and submission as you await your final judgment? And perhaps, like most of us here, you've already done all that. You've committed your life to Christ. You're a Christ follower. And you desire to grow in your faith, growing in his grace and his knowledge. In a world, you know, we're surrounded by a world that seems to be falling apart. And you desire to be a part of the solution. And you heartily agree that Jesus is our great example. Yet the question keeps coming up. How do I go about practicing it? How do I cultivate a humble and a submissive mind like Jesus? Because we all know ourselves and we know our daily struggles. Well, in today's passage, we find an answer to that question. Let's read our, our passage for today. It's, again, verses 12 through 18 of chapter 2 in Philippians. He says, Therefore, my beloved, as you have always obeyed, not as in my presence only, but now much more in my absence, work out your own salvation with fear and trembling. For it is God who works in you, both to will and to do for his good pleasure. Do all things without complaining and disputing that you may become blameless and harmless, children of God without fault in the midst of a crooked and perverse generation, 
among whom you shine as lights in the world, holding fast to the word of life, so that I may rejoice in the day of Christ, that I have not run in vain or labored in vain. Yes, and if I am being poured out as a drink offering on the sacrifice and service of your faith, I am glad and rejoice with you all. For the same reason, you also be glad and rejoice with me. Heavenly Father, we thank you once again, Lord, for the needed medicine coming before you. We need, we need your, your strength. We need the cure to our sin problem that we struggle with, Lord. And we don't want to overstate the fact, but Lord, we, just, we know that we fall short. We know, Lord, that you have a plan and a purpose, and we know that we need to hear words of instruction from you. In each and every day, we live off of your word. And so, Lord, would you go before us? Would you go before your word this morning? And may it nourish our hearts and minds as we seek to live our lives by our great example. And that's you, Lord Jesus. Help us do that. We pray in Jesus' name. And all God's people said, Amen. Amen. Well, here we uh, have our first part of the message today. We see that what Paul is about to talk about is sort of this faith-driven obedience. It's our Christian response to God's work. A Christian response. He says, Therefore, my beloved, as you have always obeyed, not as in my presence only, but now much more in my absence. So Paul, you know, again, he's, his, his affection is on display. He says, my beloved. But pay attention to the, the word therefore, that, that uh, conjunction, because he is really pointing back to verse 8 in your text of chapter 2. And in case uh, we read it last week, but here it is. He's, he's pointing back to Jesus' submission and obedience. He says it in verse 8, And being found in appearance as a man, he humbled himself and became obedient to the point of death even the death of the cross. So that's sort of our context for today as we move forward. And he, he commends them. He says, as you have always obeyed. That means to listen attentively and respond obediently. And he says, they were, they were always faithful in this. And, he, and then he says, not just because I'm with you. In other words, not while, not while the apostle is among you. You know, it's not like you're trying to look good while your parents are in the room or your teacher or your boss. You have a committed relationship. And so you have always obeyed the Lord, whether, no matter who's looking. But he says, now, much more so in my absence. And of course, he knows that Paul, Paul could be facing execution. You know, that's where he sits in his Roman prison. And he knows that he may never see them again, but he believes he will. But he's saying, even in my absence, much more, even to a greater degree, he, he commends them and asks that they would be obedient. And he, he acknowledges, you know, that's the thing we need to acknowledge one another, that they're committed believers who serve and live for Christ and not as hypocrites and putting on a show for others. And of course, when we think about our obedience, we think about it's based on Christ as our example. It's, it's based on not only what he's done, but the example that he sets. And so now he comes in and he starts to lay out what we would call our responsibility, the believer's responsibility. Notice he says, work out your own salvation with fear and trembling. 
I like the New Living Translation because it says, work hard to show the results of your salvation. Now some of you know where I'm going with this. Paul is not suggesting that they work hard to obtain their salvation. He's already addressing them as my beloved. What he's encouraging is that they work or grow from the potential that God has already given them because they're already saved. But it's an interesting passage because he says, work out your salvation, your own salvation, with fear and trembling. And what he's referring to, and this should be in the heart of all of us, he's referring to the reverence and awe that we have before God. And this means that you and I say, take seriously the trials and the temptations that we face. We have committed our lives to Christ and we should shudder to think what would happen if we fall back in our old ways. We should not allow ourselves, if we were put ourselves, we think about, you know, now I know that I'm speaking to those who, you know, have the mind of Christ and you know what it's like to have this struggle. But when you consider yourself perhaps in a compromising situation, Sometimes you just need to say, Lord, I realize that if I do that thing, that you, this temptation that's been put before me, that it will be such a disaster. It will blow up everything, every relationship in my life to the, dear, the people that I call dear, and it will hurt you. It will grieve you, the Holy Spirit. And so he's saying, that's what he's talking about, being serious about your faith. He's not talking about, you know, thinking, ah, eh, whatever, you know, this is just, you know, not giving in to sin or temptation. And so when we say fear and trembling, we mean, you know, hey, this is serious. But of course, we don't do it like a white knuckle approach either, because we have our helper, God the Holy Spirit. But if you read this passage too quickly, or somebody, some wise guy brings it up and throws it in your face, because they want to have a silly theological argument, we run into that a lot sometimes, especially on YouTube and Facebook. But... You know, if you read it too quickly, you're liable to come away with a false impression that you need to first earn your salvation, which is impossible, and then you need to spend your entire life as a Christian quaking in your boots or your sandals or your sneakers or whatever it is you like to wear because you haven't done enough. And it's actually the opposite. God saved me and only He can provide the help that I need to live up to my potential as a sincere Christian. And so Paul, in verse 13, he confirms what we just said by saying this, for it is God who works in you. So all, he's taking the, the burden off of you right away if you're thinking that you've got to perform for God. Now, that word works, that's energeo. This is God actively working in you and you responding and staying in tune with the Holy Spirit. In other words, we're not left with our own devices. And he says, it's God who works in you, who provides that energy, both to will and to do his good pleasure. Ephesians 3.20, it says, Now to him who is able to do exceedingly abundantly above all that we ask or think, according to the power that works in us. He gives you the resolution to will or the purpose. You know, you still play a role. You're not on autopilot, just walking around, Holy Spirit taking every step for you, giving you every word to speak, though he's willing to give us the words to speak. But he says, 
to will and to do. Now you are being led by God to carry out a purpose. It's not external pressure causing you to look from the outside, to look good on the outside, you know, like the Pharisees. It's internal power. It's God's divine energy working in and through you. Sometimes you'll say something like this. You'll be having a conversation with a brother or sister and you'll say, you know, God is doing something. He's up to something. There's power behind the things that I'm presently experiencing and seeing around me. All I'm doing is praying and seeking his will. I'm studying his word and I'm wanting to hear from him. And for us, it's really important that we be sensitive because sometimes in our life, God stirs in our hearts. He doesn't do it each and every day. You know, some days are, as you all know, some days are better than others, especially in our walk and our spiritual walk. But sometimes when God is stirring things up in your heart and calling you to do something to him, you need to be sensitive to that. I need to be sensitive to that. But we have a lot of noise. We have a lot of noise and distraction that keeps us from doing that. Also, when Paul speaks of this fear and trembling, he's also referring to a Christian who trembles at the thought of missing out on what it means to be a part of what God is doing in your life, in the life of others. And you see that when people have, you know, they're starting to realize they're falling back into this sort of backslidden state. And, and the enemy's got them all wrapped up and lying to them that they can never come back. But you still have that sense of dread or fear that, you know, you're missing out what God wants to do in your life. And not only is it, and this is an interesting thing that I learned studying this, it's not only a, an individual matter. It's not only just you work out your salvation. Because Paul is addressing the entire congregation in Philippi. And of course, we know it's God's word. So he's addressing this congregation and he's addressing all of the saints, all Christians. And so this is also a congregational responsibility, this working out our salvation. Because we've been talking about unity and humility in submission. And where we get to put it to use is oftentimes right here among, not only in your, in your family life, where husbands and wives and children, you know, there's all lots of mutual submission going on. But also you get to exercise it in the, in the body of Christ. And we are called to deal with our problems, which we're going to talk about a little bit later. Paul's going to cover a very important thing that we need to stop doing. But I like what Kent Hughes said. He goes, the application of this text is first corporate, how the church must conduct itself, and then individual, he contends. This is both and, or excuse me, a both and text that focuses first on the communal conduct of the church, which of course includes individual behavior. The challenge to work out your own salvation to the Philippians was both all of them as a body and to each of them as members. And it's just a reminder to us, you know, we don't do this Christian life on our own. You guys know we're a family, we're a church body, we're a local fellowship. And so when one of us is hurting and one of us is going through a tough time, it spreads. It hurt, others hurt when we're sensitive to that and when we hear about it. In, in Romans 14, Paul talks about judging one another over minor issues. 
And in that case, he was talking about this, this issue of meat sacrifice to idols. You know, can I eat it? Can I not? He was talking about the special days, the holy day, the high and holy days that they would adhere to. Because they were Jews who had become Christians. And they were surrounded by Gentiles who didn't know anything about the Jewish religion or knew that they didn't want to be a part of that. And so there was a lot of debate. But there, there was judging and there was, uh, you know, splits. And you guys see it over minor issues. And he says in Romans 14, 10 through 12, he says, why? he goes, but why do you judge your brother? And why do you show contempt for your brother? For we shall all stand before the judgment seat of Christ. For it is written, as I live, says the Lord, every knee shall bow to me and every tongue shall confess to God. So then each of us shall give an account of himself to God. You see, the account that you and I are going to give to the Lord has nothing to do with us majoring in the minors or our pet doctrine or our favorite theological discussion, which can turn into an argument sometimes. We will give an account of how we worked out our salvation. Now it comes back to the individual, right? By living up to the potential that he's planned for each of us. A word frequently used to describe what we've been talking about, God's work in the life of a Christian is called sanctification. And as we learn to walk in obedience, we learn to live more righteously, and we're gradually becoming more like Him. Not in our own strength, but we learn very quickly, of course, how the spirit is willing, but the flesh is weak. Chuck Swindoll wrote this. He says, as we submit ourselves to the working of his spirit, he gives us both the desire and the power to accomplish his will. And he does this, his invisible work in us by grace. By grace. And we simply do what he has commanded. Bless you. Next we look at the fact that Paul is reminding us and calling us to be light bearers. In other words, now it's time. It's one thing to say all that we've said so far and soak it in. But now how do we put it into practice? How does my faith-driven obedience, what does it look like? You see, the Christian life is far more than slogans and platitudes and the latest cool saying. It's really, you know, goes much deeper than that. And so Paul, in verses 14 through 16, he says, he gives them a second command, the first command we've covered, but he says the second command is, you need to eliminate a bad habit. And this is where it really hits home for all of us. He says, do all things without complaining and disputing. In other words, not just some things, but all things. Everything that you do, you should do it without complaining and disputing. The word complaining, uh, you see it in some translations would say, English translations would say murmuring. It's, a, it's kind of a secret displeasure, not openly avowed, according to Blue Letter Bible. But what, here's what it means. It means the quiet, soft, behind the back undertone of murmuring and grumbling. It's the kind of criticism and dissatisfaction and fault-finding and gossip that goes on within small groups or cliques. And so you have complaining and then you have disputing. 
And this is a constant questioning of what is true, things that are true. And this, we see this because we've, our culture has lost a foothold on truth because it's a lot of times not based in the Word of God like our culture once was here in America. And so we've lost our footing. And so nobody knows, we're all, you know, everybody can say like Pilate, what is truth? Because it's, you know, it's all relative to your situation or nobody tells the truth anymore. You can't trust institutions anymore. And so we're in a unique time, but that doesn't take away from our responsibility not to do things with disputing and complaining or constantly questioning the things that are true. This is called, if you're doing it with God's word, that's the intellectual rebellion against God. And that's the way of progressive church and the progressive Christianity. And then that in turn leads to people falling away from the Lord and apostasy. One uh, um, commentator said this. this. This hits home for all of us, okay? My, everybody hears this one and feels this one. He said, murmuring and disputes are never of God. And this is the very point of this charge. All things is nothing is left out or to be done without murmuring and disputes. Murmuring and disputes are the very sins that brought judgment upon so many Jews in the wilderness wanderings in the Old Testament. We look back in the book of Exodus and we learn of a situation where the whole congregation of the children of Israel began to complain against Moses and Aaron. Exodus chapter 16. It was 45 days since the Lord had delivered them from Egypt. And they were hungry for food. And they made these outrageous statements wishing that God would have killed them in Egypt. At least they would have been able to sit by the pots of meat and ate bread to the full. You know, just kill us here after we've gorged ourselves. And it was then that the Lord began to provide daily manna from heaven. But later in the book of Numbers, we recall that the people complained so much about the provision of manna that he sent quail. Not before his anger over their complaining displeased him so much that he consumed some of them on the outskirts of the camp, we read in Numbers 11. And then when he did provide meat or quail, he provided so much that they gorged themselves sick. See, they had whined and wept relentlessly to Moses. And the Lord heard every word, he heard every word they said. Numbers 11, 18 through 20, he said, told Moses, he says, Then you shall say to the people, Consecrate yourselves for tomorrow, and you shall eat meat. For you have wept in the hearing of the Lord, saying, Who will give us meat to eat? For it was well with us in Egypt. Therefore the Lord will give you meat, and you shall eat. You shall eat not one day, not two days, nor five days, nor ten days, nor twenty days, but for a whole month, until it comes out of your nostrils and becomes loathsome to you. Because you have despised the Lord who is among you and have wept before him, saying, Why did we ever come up out of Egypt? Eventually, we know the story. Eventually, their grumbling and complaining would cost an entire generation. Forty years of desert wandering until they died. And Numbers 14 gives you an idea. Verse 29, it says, The carcasses of you who have complained against me shall fall in this wilderness. 
All of you who were numbered according to your entire number from 20 years old and above. Hey, the point is that God despises this kind of action. And we live in an, an age of grace and forgiveness and we receive it. And yes, we struggle with these things. But keep this in mind. The person who always murmurs in disputes is not working at his or her salvation or their deliverance. They're doing the very opposite. They're working on bringing judgment upon themselves. That's what's happening. So when you fall into that trap or that rut or that habit of always complaining, always murmuring, always talking behind someone's back, especially somebody who might be in leadership, you're just bringing judgment upon yourself. Now Paul gives them reason and motivation for their obedience. And he's going to provide to us in these next two verses a series of contrasts between believers and those living in the world. The contrasts that happen. He says that you may become blameless and harmless. You see, that's a result of a good attitude uh, and speaking positively. Proverbs 16.24 says, Pleasant words are like a honeycomb, sweetness to the soul and health to the bones. To be blameless means to be faultless in the sense that your actions and words cannot be brought against you to bring up real charges. We know that there can be false charges brought against us. Harmless means you keep a sincere mind and you're not mixing it. This is important that you're not mixing your mind with a bunch of pretense or your own hidden agendas to try and get your way. So this is something you and I should be working on to be blameless and harmless. Believers are also to work at being blameless in the eyes of God. He's the one we are seeking to please. I mean, sometimes, quite frankly, we can be pretty careless about people that are in our life, people in general. But God's the one we need to please. And so we also need to work at, he says, to be children of God without fault Look in the midst of a crooked and first generation. Now it doesn't take long around the water cooler or where you hang out. And the people that you do life with in the workplace or in your schoolwork environment. It doesn't take long to hear all the grumbling and the, the things that come up. I mean, I, I was there. You know, now I have this sort of, uh, you know, as my life is different now. But I was, you know, on a daily basis like you, I'm sure. You come into grumbling. You come into complaining. You come into, you know, all the politic, political talk. And, you know, that all spills over into the church. And that's just life. But you start to learn very quickly. You know, you may have had your devotions that morning. You may have had some time, some quiet time with the Lord. And bang, you come right into it. And you're faced with it. And you see, not the people themselves. You love them. You want them to know Jesus. But the generation and the society we live in is crooked and perverse. It is. And I don't have to convince you of that. Unsaved people complain and look to find fault. If you're a saved person, does that describe you? Is that starting to become a habit in your life? He says generation. He's talking about everybody living on earth at the same time. And right now we have generation Z. We have our millennials. We have generation X. And we have us boomers. I always put us last. And there's a few 
from the great generation from World War II and World War I. Very few left. Warren Wiersbe said this, Society around us is, quote, crooked, crooked and perverse, but the Christian stands straight because he measures his life by God's word. And that's the perfect standard, is God's word. And so he says that you should be without fault in the midst of a, a crooked and perverse generation, so that among you, you shine as lights in the world. You know, you're looking for opportunities to be positive and to be complimentary. Speaking the truth in love, standing out from culture like stars against the night sky. Look, I know that this goes against this thing we call being real. We like to be real in life. I get it. But he's asking us to have an attitude change. Are you going to be perfect at it? No, you're not, because you're still a work in progress. Matthew, listen to what Jesus says on the subject. He says in Matthew 5, 14 and 16. This is Jesus declaring to his apostles and to his followers and to his disciples. This is, he is describing you right now. He says, you are the light of the world. A city that is set on a hill cannot be hidden. Nor do they give a light, or give, do they light a lamp and put it under a basket, but on a lampstand. And it gives light to all who are in your house. Let your light so shine before men that they may see your good works and glorify your Father in heaven. That's Jesus, you know, his charge to us. It's not just Paul. It's God the Holy Spirit speaking through his word. So when you surrendered your life to Christ, you became a new creation and a new example to those around you. A lot of times we stay on, I'm a new creation. <laughs> and praise God for that. And my thought life is different my desires, as we talked about earlier, are different. But also, remember, you're also a new example to those around you. And you and I will give an account before the Lord as to how we lived among the generation that he's placed us in. We will not be judged for our sin, but we can suffer loss of reward and shame before him. He calls on each of us to put aside our grumbling and complaining and instead shine bright for Christ as we, verse 16, hold fast or hold forth the word of life. He says, hold fast the word of life. That means the word of life, we're talking about biblical doctrine that teaches the gospel and the words of Jesus. John 6, 63 and 68 it is the Spirit who gives life. The flesh profits nothing. The words that I speak to you are spirit and they are life, according to Jesus. In verse 68, Simon Peter was answering a question for Jesus when he asked the question to his apostles. And, and Peter said, Lord, to whom shall we go? You have the words of eternal life. And so holding forth and holding fast that gospel. It also speaks of our witnessing. And some of you are going to be out in the public today. Some of you are going to be down in Edenton. And you're going to have unsaved people all around you. All around you. Some of you are going to pray for them. Or you're going to be praying for the message as it's going about. Or you, you may not be able to attend today's event. But remember at 4 o'clock I would ask you to maybe to take some time to start praying. And Paul says, of course, kind of on a personal note, he says, so that I may rejoice in the day of Christ. 
You know, Paul's expressing his desire. This is a personal letter that God is letting us in on. And we see in this conversation between Paul and the church at Philippi. And he has this desire to continue to walk with the Lord, even though he may not see to live, them, or live to see them again, because in the day of Christ, when Jesus returns, he hopes to see them together in Christ and in the presence of the Lord at his second coming. We can, we can grumble and complain about this present world, but Christians, believers, we have the day of Christ to look forward to. His return, his calling of the church. Think of those who have none of that. They have zero, a blank slate as to what's going to happen when they die. We have that ability to rejoice in the day of Christ. We have to look forward to hear Jesus say in Matthew 25, 21, Well done, good and faithful servant. You were faithful over a few things, and I will make you ruler over many things. Enter into the joy of the Lord. And so Paul says, I want to rejoice in the day of Christ, that I have not run in vain or labored in vain. Now David Guzik, we, we love David Guzik, and what he would say, he goes, this is the heart of a true shepherd. To have few burdens for oneself, remember Paul's writing from the prison, but for many for others. To be to not be content with one's own relationship with God. Well, that's important. But also longing to see others walking with the Lord. Not only does the Bible speak against, and God speak against murmuring and complaining, the secular world does as well. One recent research group concluded that the average person complains 30 times a day. Clinical experts recognize the obvious negative effects it has on the, and the chronic complainer and those around him or her. If you want to be a person of integrity, if you want to live the mind of Christ and let Christ be your example, you will seek the Lord's help to re replace that complaining with compliments. You will not look to mix continuous disputes and opinions over things that are true. You're not going to be one to argue for the sake of arguing. And it's been said that more churches have been harmed and more churches have split because of arguing than because of false doctrine or immorality. In other words, sometimes we're our own worst enemy, aren't we? Now, I'm not saying that here because I've got something going on. You know, there's nothing hidden. I mean, yeah, you guys have your own thoughts. We have our discussions about things. But I'm not, I'm not giving you this message. I'm giving you this message because God gave us this message, okay? I don't have an agenda here. May I not? But we need to walk in agreement. I like um, what Kent Hughes says. Now, listen carefully to what this man, who has lots of wisdom, he said this. He said, talking about the body of Christ. He said, we are prone to think that the way we relate to our brothers and sisters in Christ is a matter of indifference and that we are entitled to a little grouchiness. Even more, we can convince ourselves that a critical spirit is a virtue. And we've all probably met someone who claimed to have the spiritual gift of criticism. <laughs> After all, 
Someone needs to have the courage to say what I know everyone is thinking. Besides, a little disdain for others will be good for them. We wouldn't want them to think too highly of themselves, would we? <laughs> Some healthy grumbling and questioning will help to set this ship right. He quotes. But that is not what Paul says. He goes on. In fact, such conduct impedes the working out of salvation in the church. We said that earlier. In fact, it can ruin one's own soul or the soul of another in the church. It can make the church the cultural joke of a crooked and twisted generation. And then there are those days, that, don't they come to us all, where we get so frustrated. You know, where we say, Maranatha, I want out. Lord, come quickly. And, you know, I, we, we've had that. We jokingly express that. You know, when we consider what's going on in our world and the headlines of the day. But I was introduced to a verse from Jesus in John 17, 15. And this is what Jesus prayed for you and I. He says, I do not pray that you should take them out of the world, but that you should keep them from the evil one. That should balance out our desire to just want to depart, you know. The Lord's not praying for that. He's praying to keep us here and to fulfill his purposes. He's going to come get us someday. And we all know we have an expiration. But he's praying that we would be delivered from the temptation of the evil one so that we can carry out his will. Yet, we know the day of Christ is coming. And like I said, I know most of you here, but are you ready for the day of Christ? Are you ready when, who knows, God forbid, something terrible happens when you leave here today and you meet Jesus? Are you ready for that? Finally, Paul's example. Here he is, verses 17 and 18. He says, yes, if I am being poured out as a drink offering... On the sacrifice and service of your faith, I am glad and rejoice with you all. Now, this drink offering, he's referring to this, to both the Jew, Jewish and pagan practices, this is foreign to us, Jewish and pagan practices when they brought a, an animal to sacrifice on their altars would oftentimes mingle wine with it. And they would, in their minds, if it was a pagan sacrifice, they would believe that they were honoring their God. And so Paul is saying, I do this on the sacrifice and service of your faith. You know, he's, he's, he's taking that metaphor, he's taking that image, and he's using it to describe his imprisonment on their behalf. Just a reminder that he's, he's in jail for bringing the gospel forth. For most of us, that's a foreign concept, even though it can happen in our country. But most people in our country, Franklin Graham, he's not going to get locked up today when he brings forth the gospel. Paul's in prison for that. Many people around the world are. Yet he says, I am glad and rejoice with you all. You notice he's not complaining, and he has plenty of reason to do so. He could have said, man, if it wasn't for you guys, you know, <laughs> it wasn't for God doing all this work through you, I wouldn't be locked up. He could say something silly like that, but he wouldn't say that. He's celebrating their faith and their new life in Christ through his own personal suffering. 
Think of that. You see, when God got a hold of Saul, he became Paul the Apostle, and his life became an instrument to be used by God in a very powerful way. And we're still reading his letters today, aren't we? And so he concludes, he says, for the same reason, excuse me, also be glad and rejoice with me. The Philippians were upset. They're like, you know, we know that you were in Acts 16. We remember the day that the, the earthquake came and you were released from the prison. How come you're still in jail? Paul's example, friends, is our example. It's the example that he learned from Jesus, that we learned from Jesus. There's joy and suffering for the sake of the gospel. Jesus himself was helped, as we get ready to wind down today, but Jesus himself was helped in his own sufferings through a future promise. If you look at Hebrews 12, verses 1 and 2. I won't read the first part. It says, therefore, we also, you can see that on the screen. But look at verse 2. They were looking unto Jesus, the author and finisher of our faith, who... Speaking of Jesus, who for the joy that was set before him endured the cross, despising the shame, and has sat down at the right hand of the throne of God. Today we've learned once again that the Christian life is not to be lived as kind of like a a bump on a log. It's not lazy, it's not inactive, and it's not silent. We are called to respond to God's work through faith-driven obedience. That's what it means to work out your salvation personally and as a church. And I would call on you and I would say to myself, I say it, seek the power of God through his word and through the helper, the Holy Spirit, to live a life as he desires. Stop pressing the easy button. You know, complaining becomes easy. Stop pressing that easy button by refusing to purge the habit of murmuring and grumbling and complaining. Or even worse, mistaking that your constant criticism is needed in the body of Christ as some spiritual gift. And I want to be honest to say, yeah, there's times when we need to discuss some things. There's times when we need to have somebody come and say, hey, pastor so-and-so or Pastor John, can we talk about this particular thing? I have a question. I have a concern. There's nothing wrong with that. It's totally appropriate. It's when we amplify our criticism out into the hallway and down the kids' church hallway and into the bathrooms and into our homes so that our kids and grandkids can say, oh, how nice it is that you attend church, but you go home every day and talk bad about those people. I'm not saying, I don't know. I'm, I'm not omnipresent, so I don't know what goes on in your homes. But I've talked to many people that won't set foot in a church because of the example, the bad example that they got. And yes, it's not perfect. But it's important. Amen? Amen. So Lord, we just ask that you would go before us, Father. We thank you, Lord, that you, you bring correction sometimes to my heart, to our hearts. You bring instruction that's needed even though it's painful. You bring truth. But through it, Lord, you bring life. You bring a desire to shape us and mold us into the person that you desire us to be. 
And we can only do that as we submit to you and we surrender our lives unto you each and every day. As we sacrifice our hands and feet. We're, we're given, our bodies were given to be used as instruments for your glory and for your good. And may we endeavor to do that each and every day. And Lord, I want to say a special prayer for those that are heading down to Edenton today, especially for those that are prepared for the God Loves You Tour. I pray for Reverend, Reverend Graham and his team and all the ministry that goes on down there. I pray for those who will be participating as prayer partners and counselors. And I pray most importantly, though, that the people from our area who have heard this message and received the invitation to get out there and, and surrender, hear the gospel being taught and preached. Lord, that you would open up the hearts and minds of many, many people today. Let your light shine in their hearts. And thank you, Lord, that we get to participate in the great work that you do. So, Lord, we just simply ask that you go before us all today. Thank you for your love and kindness. Thank you for the fellowship that we share in you. And we pray all these things from our hearts. In Jesus' name, and all God's people said, amen. amen. Thank you for joining us today for Calvary Chapel Elizabeth City's online sermon series. Join us next week as we continue through the Bible, book by book, verse by verse, line by line. God bless.